Welcome to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archives podcast. In this episode, historian Jacinta Prunty looks at the Dublin slums from 1800 to 1925. Recorded at Council Chamber City Hall on 26th of August 2017 as part of Living in Victorian Dublin, Dublin City Archives Heritage Week seminar. Thanks very much, Ellen. So I'm going to run through some of the essentials in the story of living in Victorian Dublin from the perspective of the greater part of the population. Because, of course, the majority of the people were living in the city um, in uh, tenement dwellings. So the first image I have here, just picking up on our dates, we're talking about living in Dublin during the Victorian era. So we're talking about 1830s to 1901, the long reign of Queen Victoria. And when we start out picking up exactly on what um, Susan said already, which is we have a very um, tightly constrained city. You can see here again, I don't need to emphasize this. Um, we have it very much within the, within the uh, canals and within the circular roads of the city and uh, a very tight housing stock. What's interesting in the next image, which is the image of Dublin City um, from the Tom's Directory in 1898, the end of the century, you can see here, if you were to go back and block up section by section, you'd see that the whole West, as much as it was already, there isn't that much extensive new building. The new building are in the, the townships here on the south side, Rathmind and Rathgar, the Pembroke Township, the Clontarf Township and the Duncondra Township that got mentioned already. Um, and again, extending very much along, say, Bagot Street, um, Black Rock Road, etc. So the city itself, uh, for the majority of the people, um, is still within the original early, early core. So what you know already, this is a repeating, I think what everyone here will know, that the decay of large single-family townhouses into slum tenements is a feature of Dublin's urban history and it was in train even before the Act of Union but very much came into, um, became very obvious in the 1830s and most dramatic in the 1850s with the collapse of the central administration and control of the Gardiner estate and the ownership of the Gardiner estate. Um, when I was a BA student a hundred years ago, my project was on the Pembroke estate in the south inner city and I looked at the villages of Ringsend and Irishtown, ended up on that. But I became aware exactly what Susan was talking about, the great control and the um, influence and the power that the Pembroke estate had over its um, management of leases and its management of property development. And comparing that with what happened in uh, the North City, which is in the Gardner's estate area, it's only one of several estates, but it's a big one, and basically it's been taken over by bandits. They're cowboy builders, they're individuals, and there's really very hard to keep any sort of um, regulation on the, the use of those large houses. So it takes over, um, kind of takes up speed from the 1850s, most dramatically exposed in the 1913 Church Street Inquiry, and if anyone knows Christian Corlett's work on Darkest Dublin, 
um, which is, is just really superb introduction and kind of summary of, of this. So I could go through an immense amount of um, evidence for this. I like this date because this is from the 1836 Poor Inquiry, 1833 to 36, they're taking evidence, which is the background to the setting up of the, uh, what we know as the workhouse system, the Poor Law Union, and a local clergyman um, from St. Mitchens, near Church Street, he talks about how um, houses held by respectable people are now in a wretched condition, being let in rooms at least three-fourths of which may now be called poor. And he keeps talking about how um, there are two or three families in each room. And if you were to multiply the evidence from all the different witnesses to that inquiry relating to the condition of Dublin, um, you could have nothing but a very depressed view of the city. The statistics vary hugely. Some talk about having nine out of ten families. Our households are headed by women, and the women of the most destitute in this North City area. Others have contradictions around those um, statistics, but they're all going in the same very dismal direction. And uh, it, it's uh, by one of the reasons, again, for the, the continual migration to the city is just the story of poverty across the country, um, very mobile population, constant movement out um, for people looking for, in, in hopes of employment, it's, it's a it's a kind of a migration crisis in the mid-19th century. Very, very mobile. Um, Britain to Ireland, I mean, we're not talking about a barrier between Britain and Ireland, we're talking about a highway, the Irish Sea being so easily traversed. And in, for example, this is pieces taken from the minutes of the North Dublin Union during the famine, the commissioners meeting, the, the, the local guardians, I should say, meeting, and uh, one of the members complaining about how they're flocking to the city, they're squatting in the deserted mansions of the noble and the untenanted dwellings of the once opulent merchants. It's the story of commerce fleeing the city and um, this, the kind of the, the economic, um, the drivers of commerce decamping um, outside the city, that, of course much more in the later 19th century, but the kind of downturn in the economy that followed on the Act of Union and took particular hold in the 1830s with the cholera epidemics and then successive famine, uh, famine and disease outbreaks right through until the great catastrophe of the famine. It's, it's um, a succession of great, uh, as I said, disease outbreaks and um, so it's a, an ongoing story, the point I'm making. It's, it's, a, it's getting worse, it's repetitive, and it's um, focusing in particular, all of the attention is focusing in particular on the reuse of the Dublin city. Um, the existing housing stock has been reused by local um, uh, house farmers, is the term that's used very often. These would be slum landlords or local landlords. And it's the issue of sewage, as it happens in the, in the suburbs as well. It's the issue of sewage and the spread of um, typhoid or any disease carried by, by, by dirty water, contaminated water. 
it's the sewage and water question, of course, that precipitates action. Precipitates action in the city, as it does in the suburbs, because uh, disease is no um, respecter of class. And the um, report, the 1879 report on the sewage and drainage, keeps going back to the fact that these are single-family dwellings designed for another era, when you had a single family with a servant class um, and you had the, the toilet accommodation was fine for one family, um, but simply where you had up to 70 or 80 persons in the house, it was totally inadequate. There's always kind of the moral um, dilemma. There's, I love this story actually in the 1870s as well, where whether or not uh, we will promote the uh, introduction of um, flush toilets and water closets and of course the political opinion is that the people of Dublin are so dirty they would never learn the habits of how to use uh, flush toilets properly that that would be just beyond um, culturally beyond the poor of the city of Dublin and um, so there's a nice debate going on there. The excessive death rate is constantly then being tied, up, tied brought back to the level of overcrowding and being brought back again to the level of poverty, underpinned by the poverty of the citizens. Well, we talk about one third of the people of Dublin living in single room tenements. That's the statistic that matters, because this is what is real life, ordinary life, this living very, very close together for the majority of the city centre population. Um, when you count up the whole Dublin district, of course, uh, the statistic isn't quite so startling, but for the city centre areas, it's the vast majority of the citizens are in single room accommodation. The, um, the use and the reuse of this kind of um, inherited housing stock for family accommodation is commented on by every possible visitor. And um, it becomes kind of the, it's iconic of Dublin in the worst sense, um, right up until the 1930s. You have visitors coming and talking about how uh, the big, the, the, the better houses, um, particularly around Gardiner Street, which of course is near the North Wall, where you have visitors coming in, the first they meet is this extraordinary um, phenomenon of these very, very large houses um, being multiple occupancy. I would like to mention that um, they talk here about um, Sarah Atkinson, who's a very good observer and very astute uh, writer, very critical eye. Um, she talks about how you have the princely residences, sometimes it's simply downgrading, and then she is entertained by the fact that very often these, uh, some of these large houses have other uses. In this case, she picks up how, and goes catalogues how um, some of these grand houses have become the residence they used for schools, used for hostels, used for hospitals, used for asylums. And she talks about how kind of um, a very, she's a very nationalist writer. And she talks about how, sorry, I should say she's a very Catholic writer, a very well-informed, well-traveled Catholic writer. And she's very entertained by this, um, these Catholic institutions taking control and sees it, reads it as the resurgence of um, Catholicism. But a good example here, and um, this is a later map, of course, the in 1925 map here, um, of the, the civic survey map, and picking up one of the examples would be 
Henrietta Street, which is a very, very fine, um, one of the finest of the uh, Georgian townhouses, uh, built for Luke Gardner himself. And um, there's a story there about the use of these. Want to bring us back here, just as we have very short in time, and pick up maybe just two or three little points. Um, we're here in the Royal Exchange, um, right here in the city centre, and this is just a, a redrawing of the um, 1846 um, first manuscript survey of Dublin, uh, or the survey survey, which is the base map for the valuation. And what you have here is, while you have Parliament Street here, which is the work of the Wide Street Commissioners, you can see even then the higgledy-piggledy, tight, um, very congested uh, medieval fabric that's still evident in the mid-19th century. So you've got kind of two stories. You've got little um, set pieces of the 18th century Wide Street Commissioners sponsored or promoted set pieces of this redesign and then you have the inherited um, much much earlier much tighter um, organ much more organic um, medieval fabric and you have as well the example the, this is a North City example here which is the um, redesign of the whole area around the um, four courts on the north side which again uh, had a huge um, was hugely congested uh, in the early 19th um, century. The numbers, the figures, every statistical survey that you have, Dublin City, no matter how you cut and dice it, uh, Dublin City comes out as the, as the city in the British Isles with the greatest number of one-roomed tenement dwellings and the greatest concentration of families uh, in one-roomed dwellings of households. So they look at the stats in different ways and regrettably Ireland comes out repeatedly. The business that I was interested in on this stat, which is the, um, say, the building of first-class dwellings, and you can see here from 1841, 51, 61, 71, 81, 91, right through to 1911, almost however you look at it, there is almost no high quality or good quality in top range um, investment in urban building in Dublin city right across the 19th century and you know why um, Susan has, has indicated that. So even while the, um, the, 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 this refers to the number of families in accommodation, so first class accommodation is where you have a first class house occupied by a single family. Um, the deaths, again, the death rates, no matter, again, how you compared and contrasted, and even as the death rate comes down, the death rate in Dublin City is topping the death rate across other Irish cities and across the British Isles. There are lots of um, statistical debates around it, um, but this is compared with Glasgow or compared with Edinburgh, which had notoriously high death rates. The internal divisions of the houses, I'll the, this is what you know, they're not just talking about the tallest houses, uh, the four-storey over basement, but other houses. So a whole range of the Dublin city property is reused for single-family occupation. In this case, uh, sorry, the one I have there is a Fade Street, which is quite a good example of Stephen's Green there, and because you've got the nice um, uh, skylight, and it's very, these are very handsome merchant houses in their day. 
I did this stats business where I was watching, going street by street um, and working out what proportion of each street was in tenements and what is happening here over a third, there are large parts of the city where over the third of the housing or at least a third of the premises are listed as um, tenements. So there are very, very tight streets and concentrations where they're almost exclusively are really exclusively um, tenement dwellings. That is the, the, the house type, or at least the, the type of um, accommodation available. And in this case, this is the one I'm picking up here. This is 1900. This is O'Connell Street, nice and wide. And we're talking here about Gardner Street beside it. And we're talking here about um, Marlborough Street, where the Co-Cathedral is. And you can see here Marlborough Street, and you see all of this area behind O'Connell Street, for example, um, being largely uh, a tenement dwelling. Um, there is a massive amount of dereliction and, uh, in the city, which is part of the experience of tenement living in the city, because there's lots of... where From 1879, when the corporation started closing houses as unfit for habitation, um, they, because there was no investment in the new, in new building, you have a huge number of derelict and abandoned buildings as part of the, if you were visiting or working there, this would be part of your daily reality. This is a 1913 picture from the darkest Dublin, but this is, is common. All of the time, while I'm rushing to make a few points, I'm painting a very black and white picture. There was never such a thing as a black and white picture of life. Uh, for some people, um, if you had, if you were a single family, maybe a husband and wife and one child, and you occupied a front room in Henrietta Street, and your mother was in the other room and that, and your family were around you, and you had reasonable space, and the toilet was well kept, and you had access to clean water, it could be quite a good setup. Where you were in the house, the room you took, the cellar dwelling, whether you were in cellars, or whether you were at the top floor, the cellar dwelling, was, was um, cellars were forbidden for occupation from, I think it's 18, there's an 1845, what did you say, 1845-1847 regulation, but it really only takes off um, with the Public Health Act, the one that's brought in, the Irish one of 1878, where they start enforcing it. And then what we have at the same time is this Public Health Act um, enforcing the closure of cellar dwellings. I have Vincent de Paul lists where people are still living in cellars. So you have squatting or occupation of substandard housing even while you have closures. So there is this um, social gradation within the houses and then um, gradation between streets. And uh, the other point I'm going to just, um, the vast majority of the population, this is the type of accommodation that's available. And we know a huge amount about it because it's the despair of both sanitary and housing officials. And it's extraordinarily well, um, well covered in different reports. But of course, what they're always focusing on, because of the nature of many of the sources, they're focusing on the problems in the housing, which makes it difficult to get other aspects um, of life. But a few things we can say, I'm just going to skip through. A few things we can say, um, for example, from one of my charity sources, looking at the Ladies' Association of Charity. This worked in the north inner city in that Gardner Street area. Um, 
did house-to-house visitation, and we have their relief books from 1851 onwards, and they wrote their little annual reports, and they, I just quote one little piece, where um, this is an 1861 report, 10 reports, where one of the ladies reports on visiting in the parish of Gardiner Street, and she says, oh, if the ladies of the parish and of the city could be induced to join us as, as lady visitors, here, two sisters dwell. They've lived together, worked together during life. Now one is sick. You enter the little room. It is almost dark. For four of the six panes of glass are patched with paper to keep out the cold. There is no fire, very little bed covering. One and threepence must be paid weekly for the rent. The income is now sixpence a day, with one or two idle days, usually in the week. This poor creature lies upon her sick bed all day, suffers in silence. Her sister comes home later in the evening, tries to light a little fire to prepare a little food. A cup of miserable tea and a little dry bread, the whole costing about twopence from the chief and only one meal of the two sisters. This is how the poor live and how the sick poor suffer. And yet, when we entered that poor room, the poor sick sister was saying her beads for the conversion of sinners. Yes, for the cold world that surrounded her. So lots of little anecdotal pieces that you could pick out um, from these visits uh, that give you a little, a little more one of the ladies' reports is about how um, somebody had died and they were keening in Irish, which, of course, these lady visitors didn't think much of at all. They thought it was half savage, and they um, tried to say the rosary with them in English. But they had a heart for them. They had a feel for them. Um, they uh, also talk about the diet of tea and bread, bread and tea, tea and bread, and how... how ubiquitous that is but they also give evidence for all the little networks of support because of course the first your your support network were your family and your neighbors um, and very low very intense and very um, important uh, this was and I just go on to the next one and this is an example from my own work these are the um, the little dots these are donors on one side those who donated to the charity, sorry, um, the 1855 list here, the round dots are those who got help. Roundy dots, they got help from the ladies of charity. And you can see around Gloucester Street, Sean McDermott Street, in the back lanes and alleyways here where you have all of these round dots, these are people who got help. The triangles are people who donated. These are the ladies who helped and the ones with the square around them are ladies who we know their name and address and they were part of the committee and part of the visitors. So you can build up this little local intimate geography of those who helped. These are the, the helpers, the lady visitors along the main street and in behind are those who got help. When you go to 1895, that's where it gets very interesting. All of the houses which you track down, you can track them week by week, are becoming the houses of those getting relief. There are now there are 70 persons in it and a fa- house that was um, where there were a mother and a daughter were living in maybe very respectable lodgings by the 1890s. You can track the decline and I'm afraid it's all in one direction. Uh, so even while you have um, some house clearances, you still have um, people from the laneways moving out into the larger houses. There's lots of evidence on how precarious the income of people was, how, how they managed, particularly in dealing. 
in baskets, in street dealing, uh, in laundry work, in taking in laundry and in working in, in laundries all over the city, and above all in domestic work. There is a very much a very big unskilled labour, uh, pool of labour, um, for women in particular, uh, in, in domestic service, in laundry, in um, cleaning and in dealing. And for men, very much unskilled, the, the predominant work is um, short-term weekly work in unskilled occupations, very often tied to the, the port with the, the ships coming in, where you'd be employed for a couple of days and then nobody needed for another week or two. So very precarious, that's the point I'm making, which of course underpins this reliance on poor accommodation. Just want to mention maybe one last point here on this. Uh, we're here in the Royal Exchange and, um, and behind us here, this is the, the Dublin Castle. And some of you will know as you come in here, Little Ship Street and Great Ship Street. And you know along the side of the castle here, these are the, um, they're now used part of the tax revenue offices and um, the ordnance office there, you know it out the back which is the Chester Beatty Library today. And um, if you look, this is turned upside down, that's why I showed you that, uh, because this is the Dublin Castle, um, Ship Street Barracks, and along here, along Ship Street. And we have another kind of um, slum in the 19th century city, which are the slums attached to the, to the barracks. In their kind of hidden slums, in the slum here for the, the 1861 report, um, there is an investigation post Crimea into the shocking condition of barracks and hospitals around the British Empire. And uh, Florence Nightingale was involved in this, and they're beginning to realise that actually, you know, the soldiers are, you know, more likely to die in the barracks than they are, are in the hospital than they are on the battlefield. And um, in comparison with, for example, the hospital treatment of soldiers in the French army and in the Prussian army, um, they had much, you know, much way ahead of what was, on, what was being done for soldiers in the British army. And one of the pieces I was interested in when I was looking at this was, say, the ship street the British government had taken houses here, ordinary townhouses, which hadn't been in tenements, and they used them then, they took them in as barracks, they used them as barracks, they didn't do too much with them, um, but they housed soldiers in them, and by 1862, there were two rooms of regulation space for one man, so the space that the regulation said for one man was occupied by 10 persons in each case men, women and children. All of the rooms held over twice the regulation allowed. The allowed regulation space, which was very tight per cubic metre, allowed four, five, three men to be accommodated. The healthy regulation space was, would, have, would have brought that number down, but even at the old regulation, old um, sanitary regulations, uh, would have allowed four, five, three men to be accommodated and the number of persons in the ship street was 1377.
men, women and children. There was no division between married men and single men. There was no ablution rooms for the men, no wash houses for clothes, no kitchen, no cookhouse. And it was probably worse than any of the Dublin city slums by which it was so closely surrounded. And I'm afraid I've worked on Galway and Galway is the match of this as well. But Chip Street had particularly large numbers and it's the beginning of um, pushing for married men's quarters. They, they, they're all basically under the noses of the British Army, families occupying the space for one man um, and, and multiplying problems with it. Okay, and uh, I think I'll just leave it, leave it as that. The, the, the one I had there was simply that if you look at the 1913 Sackville Street, the police attack material, and if you look at the Church Street housing, housing collapse of 1913, even though they have no connection to each other, and political connections were made later, but they're actually two separate events, uh, the inquiries, the government inquiries that went into that are probably, they're online, their House of Commons papers, and I think they're one of the best insights to um, internal living conditions, uh, the evidence of, in the police case, the evidence of police brutality, and in the Church Street, the collapse story, the evidence of the intricate um, subdivision and tenancy arrangements there give very kind of human um, aspects to the to the story not just the um, sanitary and medical officer reports okay thanks thank you for listening to the dublin city public libraries and archives podcast to hear more please subscribe on itunes or soundcloud you can also visit our website dublincitypubliclibraries.ie and follow us on facebook and twitter